You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In this episode of First Look, Jonathan Capehart sits down with Chuck Lane, Gene Robinson, and Mariana Sotomayor to discuss whether the Biden administration will pay a political price for the withdrawal from Afghanistan and Republican criticism of vaccine mandates. Let's listen. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Well, from the reconciliation package to hearings on the evacuation of Kabul, not to mention preparing for tomorrow's rally in support of the January 6th insurrectionists, Capitol Hill has been abuzz with activity this week. Mariana Sotomayor, Washington Post congressional reporter, has her eyes on it all, and she joins me now. Welcome to First Look. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Mariana, let's start with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who testified before the House and the Senate on the chaotic evacuation out of Afghanistan, out of Kabul. It was a rough couple of days, especially during Republican questioning. What was the Republican line of attack against the secretary? Well, they were immediately calling for him to resign. They were basically trying to put all the blame of this 20-year war on the Biden administration and on the shoulders of the Secretary of State. He, of course, really tried to keep his cool and defend the fact that Biden very much wanted to withdraw uh, from Afghanistan by that August deadline and continually repeated the fact that this was actually something that was done during the Trump administration. Of course, that was something that Republicans didn't necessarily want to hear, again, demanding for more answers or at least talking and filibustering mm-hmm. for a lot of the time. Um, but, it, you know, it's also worth pointing out that Democrats were very quick to also ask him questions and be very direct and 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 blunt about what the response was, why they the administration did not know or at least was not as adequately prepared to deal with the Taliban quickly taking over the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you talk about how the secretary, you know, kept his cool. Um, I mean, he is unflappable. Uh, as someone who has interviewed him before, he is totally unflappable. But, you know, on these calls uh, of resignation, how likely is it that someone within the Biden administration will be held responsible for that chaotic evacuation? Is that even likely or possible that someone would resign or be asked to leave or fired? You know, I think we by now we would have seen someone resign or someone leave if it were to get to that point of blame. Of course, if you really think about it, especially with Antony Blinken, he's been a Biden advisor for so many years. As someone who actually covered Biden on the campaign trail, Blinken was often seen, even if it wasn't a foreign policy speech, just there as an advisor helping Biden. So it really would be difficult for the president to even ask for a resignation. And at this point, you know, you have very much seen the administration, especially Biden himself in repeated speeches, defend his position. So it it would not be surprising that if they asked for a resignation of some kind, it would in some ways at least signal that they are accepting blame and that maybe they did not make the right decision. Let's move on to um, infrastructure and the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. It's starting to come into focus, at least it started coming into focus this week. Where do things stand? Yeah, you know, this is, it's been two weeks, more or less, of House uh, members really marking up 
a number of pieces of legislation that will end up becoming this 3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. And, you know, that took a lot of work. There was already a lot of differences that we saw bubble up. And it's interesting to hear both from leadership aides and also House Democratic members and aides essentially admit that that was the easy part. So we're really starting to move to, uh, yeah, part two. And it's about to get a little bit more complicated only because a lot of these members who have echo demands, many of them uh, moderate House Democrats, they are going to begin the negotiating phase with leadership. Leadership, of course, really trying as much as possible, as hard as possible to either strike deals, kind of temper down a lot of these demands. And we can get into that. Uh, and, and try and prevent any more demands that could come up, especially since Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema are, are starting to themselves try and signal what they want. And, and that could potentially mm -hmm. irritate a number of the progressives in the House. OK, I'm going to take the bait, Mariana. Uh, um, OK, so there have been so many demands um, that we have heard about for weeks, if not a few months uh, from moderates, from progressives. So. What is the one demand that is out there that could really upend everything, the negotiations that are happening? You know, that is, a, it's hard to think of just <laughs> one thing, but if you had to really pinpoint it, it's almost the same demand that we had heard a month ago when the House came back and you remember the moderates were really demanding to pass that bipartisan infrastructure bill mm -hmm. that already passed the Senate. They really want to make that September 27th deadline and have that vote. And there are some moderates who think that there are enough House Republicans who could actually potentially curb any progressives who are going to vote or expected at least to vote against that bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, but as of right now, we haven't really heard that there are going to be a number of Republicans who will make that happen and, and, and shepherd that piece of legislation. Um, of course, progressives don't, they, they, and Pelosi, I should also mention, really want to make sure both that bipartisan infrastructure bill and the 3.5 reconciliation bill pass together. And mm -hmm. that is why progressives really want to potentially sink that infrastructure bill if it is done before the reconciliation bill is done. So really right now, the long story short of it is timing. They obviously have two weeks to maybe try and pass both of them together, but not too much optimism there since there's a lot of negotiating and right. potentially rewriting to be done. Oh, sure. There definitely will be re rewriting, but there is a reason why Speaker Pelosi wants those two, those two bills to be voted on at the same time, because she doesn't want her members taking a difficult vote that'll make the vulnerable in the midterm elections, which is a wonderful segue uh, to talk about one of the other complications here, speaking of the calendar, and that is, if history repeats itself, Republicans stand a good chance of uh, regaining the House majority in the next midterm um, elections. And I'm just wondering if the knowledge of that the possibility that they Democrats could no longer be in the majority after the midterms. Is that what is pushing, what is driving um, the push by the president, by Speaker Pelosi, by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to get the reconciliation bill passed by the end of the year, before the end of the year? 100 percent. 
you are actually hearing more anxiety from House Democratic members who for some time have been saying, hey, we're going to bring an infrastructure bill to you. We're going to bring child tax credit to you. And, you know, this past month was August recess, many of them holding town halls and, you know, talking to a number of aides. They are saying that voters are getting anxious. They're like, OK, you've been telling us this for a long time. Where are the goods? So members are definitely at this point really pressuring and just want to be able to hold tangible evidence and, and be able to tell their constituents, this is happening. Look outside, your road, your highway is being built. And the mm -hmm. closer, of course, you get to that 2022 midterm, it is just going to be so much more difficult for moderates, not to mention frontliners, especially right. now with redistricting those maps soon coming out. It's going to just be more complicated for them to take complicated votes. Yeah, it's a it, complicated is a kind word. It's a full on yes. mess. We got less, than, Marianne, we've got less than two minutes, but I got to squeeze this question in about vaccine mandates. Uh, President Biden announced last week um, that, you know, he wants employer, employers with 100 employees or more to either mandate vaccines or have their employees tested regularly. The response from Republicans was swift. It, they, they condemned it. But this week, a California recall that was fueled by Governor Newsom's response to the pandemic totally fizzled when 63% of California voters rejected uh, the effort to recall him. And I'm just wondering what kind of impact, if any, has Newsom's victory had on the Hill? Well, you know, a lot of House Democrats especially, but also Senate Democrats kind of had that breath of relief. You know, they were able to say, okay, this is definitely something that we continue to message on. And also it's worth pointing out that in that race, Newsom very much made it a point to compare the Republicans in that race to Trump. And that seemed to have worked as well. So it, as of now, you know, you could compare it to even Biden's last minute formula besides his whole pitch on infrastructure. A lot of it was I and Democrats can responsibly govern against the coronavirus. We can try and bring some stability into government. And a big reason why is because we're not Trump. That seems to have worked. But of course, got to remember, 2022, still very far away. Who knows oh, yeah. what the October surprise will be or even the June surprise of next year. So things can definitely change. But as of right now, Democrats are feeling a little safe. Yeah, and, and that is a very good cautionary note. We are more than a year away from the midterm elections. And another point, that, I mean, California is an overwhelmingly Democratic state. That's one thing. Two to one Democratic registration majority um, is another thing. But I also think what is key is that the recall was rejected by 63% of the California voters, which is, if memory serves, two percentage points higher than um, Governor Newsom's electoral win when he ran in 2018. So it was a huge, even though it's a democratic state, it was a huge, huge si signal. Mariana Sotomayor, this was great. Thank you very much for coming to First Look. Thanks for having me, this is fun. And we're gonna keep the conversation going about COVID and the California recall with our opinions roundtable in just a few minutes. Stay with us. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post where we will find Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson and Charles Lane. Charles, I never call you Charles. Chuck, welcome <laughs> both to First Look. You can call him Eugene and me Charles and then, you know. Yeah, it's Chuck and Gene, actually. Chuck so. and Gene. 
Okay, Chuck and Gene. All right, so Gene, I'm starting with you. We saw COVID uh, politics play a role in the California recall election. As I was just mentioning, Governor Newsom mm -hmm. survived handily with 63% of California voters saying no to the recall. President Biden is saying those results are a, quote, resounding win for the Democrats' approach to COVID. Is this a roadmap for 2022 for the Democrats, do you think? Well, I think it's it, it's starting to look like a sketch uh, to me, at, at the very least. I mean, uh, you know, just because uh, uh, Newsom did lean into the COVID question uh, so hev so heavily, uh, and um, and because, as you said, he got such a big margin, um, bigger than his electoral margin, um, uh, and he, you know, he leaned in on COVID. He leaned in on comparing um, his the main opponent on the Republican side to Trump, saying mm -hmm. the alternative was Trump. Um, and I think that seemed to work. And so if you're a very optimistic Democrat, you could you could picture a scenario next um, November in which um, <clears throat> the, the Republican brand is so toxic because of Trump. Uh, and and because of, uh, of of the way people feel about COVID, um, that you could you know you could keep your um, Democratic majority in the House. Maybe you could even grow it. Now that's a very optimistic sort of uh, sort of look at, at an election that's quite far away. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but um, you know you can you could you could really extrapolate that from Newsom's, Newsom's um, result in California uh, if you are, you know, Pollyanna. You know, I love your phrasing. Um, if you are a very optimistic Democrat, I mean, yeah. optimi I mean, very optimistic is kind. <laughs> I mean, it, Democrats, if anything, are always nervous. Super nervous. The sky mm -hmm. is falling every 15 minutes or so. Uh, but Chuck, yeah. I would love your perspective on this and whether we can read anything in uh, into the California results for next year's midterms. Well, of course, California is the quintessential blue state, uh, as you were talking about earlier, Jonathan. So it's hard it, just for that reason alone to draw wider conclusions. I remember when this recall started, uh, I went around saying there are only two possible results, either Newsom wins or Caitlyn Jenner wins which was my way of saying there was no way anybody except Newsom could win. He got a little bit of a scare in the summer when the polls showed that it was getting close. And I think a lot of that had to do not so much with COVID or anything else, but with a lot of the kind of problems, the wildfires, the homelessness, and other things that are sort of particular to California. But when Newsom rallied the Democrats and he got the National Party involved and they all got on side and, and messaged consistently, it was no contest. And I guess the point I think that it was strongest for the Democrats in this campaign was just link anybody with an R next to his name to Trump. Uh, and, you know, that's in a way fair because the party has kind of gone over to pure Trumpism. And um, to kind of, as Gene was saying, render them toxic that way. There are a lot of districts, though, in this country and indeed states where Trump is nowhere near as unpopular as he is in California. And unfortunately for the Democrats, I think that is where 2022 will end up being decided. 
And you know what? And to to your point, you know, linking every linking every Republican to Trump. But with Larry Elder, who was the one of the 46 people running um, to replace Newsom, with the high, he had the the the, um, the higher uh, poll ratings. I think the last number I saw, he was like 46 percent or something like that of the 46 people running. But anyway, um, it's one thing to link a Republican to Donald Trump. It's another to be the Republican candidate and sound like Donald Trump in terms of uh, of his policy positions. Gene, do you think that Larry Elder just sort of made Newsom's and the Democrats' arguments land and make it easy to make that link between Elder and Trump? Well, I think he did, but but that that's kind of the dynamic in the Republican Party now, right? I mean, you cannot um, you know be critical of Trump and establish separation from Trump and uh, and win a primary um, in you know just about anywhere. I mean, um, uh, you know, look at look at um, uh, you know, is Liz Cheney going to win her next primary in Wyoming? I kind of doubt it. Um, uh, you, you can't do that. On the other hand, uh, then you get to the general election, and while Trump is very popular among the Republican base, he is toxic to Democrats, and if he can be made to remain toxic among independents, that's the, that's the I think, Democratic theory of the case. I would just note a really good test, maybe a better one than California, will be this upcoming Virginia gubernatorial yeah, election exactly. where Glenn Duncan is trying to somehow have it both ways with respect to Trump. And if he pulls that off, which it doesn't look like he's going to, but if he does, that would be an indicator. Mm -hmm. And from and from my own reporting, I know that the McAuliffe camp is taking Youngkin's uh, challenge very, very seriously. Um, before I move on to the General Milley story, I do want to squeeze in, get your thoughts from both of you real quickly about how concerned are you about this rally uh, tomorrow here in Washington uh, by people, far-right folks, coming to the Capitol in support of the January 6th insurrectionists. Chuck, you go first. There's so many ways in which one could be concerned about it. Um, I'm concerned that it's even occurring at all, that somehow the idea that these are political prisoners uh, and the January 6th insurrection was a benign event is spreading in this country is, is worrisome enough. I think given what happened on January 6th, you have to think about the possibility of violence and you have to really hope the security situation is better controlled this time than it was that time. Mm -hmm. And at a minimum, this time, there's fencing around the perimeter of the Capitol, unlike the last time. Gene? Well, I, look, I, there's <clears> been <throat> such a buildup, and, 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 you know, there is fencing now. The police are going to be ready. Um, so I, I'm less worried about um, uh, actual violence or some repeat of, of January 6th tomorrow than I am about the way it furthers the big lie. The big lie about the election, uh, which it just becomes ever more solidly implanted at the heart of the Republican Party, and it is a total lie. This is this is just this is bizarre, but this is so damaging to to democracy when one of our two parties uh, is is that divorced from objective reality. 
Mm -hmm. Gene, I'm going to stick with you on this General Milley question because we learned this week um, from the book Peril from our, co our, our colleagues, Bob Woodward and Bob Costa, um, that the joint, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, was so worried about then-President Trump's behavior that he secretly contacted his Chinese counterpart to assure him that there would be no rogue military, military action by the United States, uh, also because the Chinese were asking, you know, well, what's up with your guy? But also that um, General Milley told them that he would, quote, warn China of a rogue attack before it happened. Uh, your view of General Milley's actions, Gene? Well, I'd say, number one, there are contacts, military to military, uh, right. uh, you know, at, at that level um, that uh, that take place from time to time. And uh, I think if I think this was a pretty darn good time for such a contact because um, uh, because the president was nuts. I mean, as as, as you know, Milley and, and um, uh, Speaker Pelosi um, went back and forth saying in that conversation that's also reported in the book, he was crazy. Uh, he was not acting um, rationally. And um, I am I personally am glad that somebody was reassuring um, uh, this worried adversary that, um, that there was some stability in Washington and nothing crazy was going to happen. Okay, Chuck. Hold forth. I see it on your uh -huh. face. Let well, loose. I, I think there's, as is so often the case with these book excerpts, there's a lot we don't know about the precise context mm -hmm. in which all of this took place. It would be one thing for General Milley to be promising the Chinese a heads up on an attack, which incidentally he did October 30th before the January 6th thing. If he was doing that under instructions from the Secretary of Defense, which it now turns out that seems like maybe what happened. Josh Rogan has a really good column in our pages today. So if these contacts were authorized by his civilian superior, they look a lot different to me than they would if they were somehow Millie freelancing. And, you know, the initial shock of the story was this idea that maybe this uniformed officer was kind of going off and staging a sort of partial coup on his own, which would be very, very troubling, even if he did it with good intentions. So I think, uh, and, and Gene is right, there are all kinds of, they call them deconfliction contacts that go on with our adversaries all the time. So I think it's really important now that General Milley be given an opportunity. He's going to testify on the Hill in a couple of weeks to clear the air about this, to reassure people, if he can, that he was operating authorized by the Secretary of Defense. And if he can make that assertion convincingly, I think then what we have is something more like what Gene says, a garden variety case of deconfliction. But if there was any freelancing by a uniformed officer, then I think that would be more troubling. Um, you know, time flies when you're having fun. We've got less than five minutes left. I'm going to try to squeeze in a bunch here. Eugene, Eugene, Gene, you did an online Washington <laughs> Post chat this week where you spoke about uh, Donald Trump's potential 2024 candidacy and pointed out that the Democrats beat Trump in 2020 when Trump had all the advantages of incumbency. Are you saying that President Biden shouldn't worry about a rematch? 
Well, no, I mean, you, you know, how do you not worry um, about any potential opponent? If you're not worried about your reelection, um, then you're probably not going to get reelected, right? But, um, uh, and, and yes, Trump is the most potent um, force in the Republican Party. And so you would, and, and he has a, a huge following nationwide. Um, he got a lot of votes last time. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, you got to be worried about it. Um, I was just pointing out that, in fact, we did have this contest once, and Donald Trump lost it, uh, and he was at that time in a better position um, to, you would think, to win than he will be uh, in 2024. But that's, you know, eons from now, so, mm -hmm. you know, who knows where we'll be in 2024. All right, Chuck, I'm going to ask you to give me a yes or no answer so I can ask you about your Sirhan Sirhan column. Do you think, yes or no, Trump is running in 2024? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I caught that, Chuck. I caught that, Chuck. You did this and then said yes. <laughs> trying, to, <laughs> trying to have it both ways. Okay, I'll leave that alone. Let me just ask you about your, the column that you wrote um, that was critical of the California Parole Board decision to allow Sirhan Sirhan, the murderer of Robert F. Kennedy, a, a chance to walk free. And that decision may be overturned, but why do you believe Sirhan Sirhan should remain behind bars? Well, the background, of course, is that he killed Robert F. Kennedy at the height of his uh, presidential campaign in June of 1968. And he did so for a political motive, which was uh, that Robert F. Kennedy had supported military aid to Israel. And his uh, death sentence was uh, overturned way back then, and he served 53 years behind bars. And I can see a sound argument for anyone who would say, look, that's a long time. He's done his time. He's served enough. He's a 77-year-old man now. But what makes the difference for me, and as I tried to argue in my column, is that there's no evidence really that Sirhan is remorseful for what he did. Mm. And I feel that when people are granted clemency or parole or any kind of um, leniency after they've committed a murder, particularly one as heinous and as consequential as this one, the first thing we look for is a sign that they're really sorry they did it. And I don't think that's really too much to ask. And over the years, Sirhan has been very contradictory and equivocal on those things in his various parole hearings and so on. And indeed, the parole board this time acknowledged that Sirhan had not shown sufficient remorse, but went on and uh, granted it anyway for other reasons. This will ultimately mm -hmm. land on the desk, possibly, of Gavin Newsom, and it would be a very important decision for him. Um, Gene, we've got um, less know, than a minute I, left. Real, yeah, real quickly, yeah. I just wanted yeah. to jump in quickly on Sirhan. I think there's another reason, and that's deterrence. Given this, at the atmosphere we're living in now and the, the, the death threats that so many public officials uh, are receiving um, just for the way they vote on this or that, uh, I think there is value in demonstrating that, you know, you kill a major you assassinate a major political figure, you're going to spend the rest of your life in, in prison, period. I think there's value in, in, there's deterrent value in that. I hope there is. And, you know, to your, to your point, Gene, um, um, you know, today we're waking up to news that Congressman Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio is announcing his retirement 
because because of the death threats he and his family have been receiving because he voted to uh, impeach the pre uh, to impeach. Uh, then again, then President Trump. But we're going to have to leave it there. Eugene Robinson, Chuck Lane, and Eugene, I have just have to say, I like the no tie look. This is good. I've never oh, seen well, you without a tie well, on, on television. <laughs> but anyway, we'll talk fashion next time. We got to go. Thanks very much for coming to First Look. Thank you, John. Thanks very much. Head to WashingtonPostLive.com to find more information about our upcoming programs. Once again, I'm Jonathan Capehart. Opinion writer for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for watching Washington Post Live's First Look. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.